0: Good morning. Uh, I'm here with Alan. We missed the last podcast uh, because of DEFCON. We were also busy, we forgot to do it. But now at least two of us have made it back. And Alan's starting with uh, California's mega flood.
1: Yes, some scientists have done some modeling. They've looked at historical flood data. They've looked at future weather uh, climate change predictions. And they've concluded that the state of California is at profound risk for a mega flood, not just a flood, not just a lot of rain, but the kind of flood that would turn the entire Central Valley into a 300 mile long lake, which actually happened in the 1800s, interestingly. So mega floods are not uh, unprecedented in California's history, even in uh, not too distant history, but there's a real possibility that thanks to climate change, there will be more atmospheric rivers that uh, direct precipitation onto California. And we've had some atmospheric rivers in the past few years, um, but these will be far more profound. We're talking about uh, maybe a couple of inches of rainfall per hour, and then those rainstorms going on for weeks, at which point um, the Central Valley will be underwater and even the LA basin will be underwater. And we're talking about potentially a trillion dollars of economic damage as a result. And, and you know, would, it, would it
0: relieve our water shortage? There'll <laughs> be not enough total water and it would all just run off and we'd be hosed.
1: That's well, yes. It, certainly, Though the reservoirs would be full. And that would be a huge problem too, because uh, the Oroville Dam had a big failure a few years ago. It didn't completely wash out. But the spillway had a failure, and uh, that's an earthen, par- partially earthen dam. So, And there are others like it. So if we had a huge a rainstorm like that, a rain system, not only would there be a, a tremendous flooding initially, but it's possible that some of these dams would wash out because there's just too much water. They, even with the spillways, they can't dump enough water fast enough. Um, and then we wouldn't be able to store any water and then on top of that the quality of the water We're getting might also be problematic which relates to my second story that I'll be talking about today
0: Yeah, so so is there something we can do should we be building more dams and more gutters or something?
1: Uh, well the study in this study. They don't really talk much about that But
0: uh, it sounds like you'd have to do something really big
1: Yeah, Um, I I don't really know what you can do other than uh, changing the topography of the state, though, because, you know, you've got low lying areas, and you've got a lot of water, and that water is going to go through those low lying areas. So unless you change the amount of rain coming in, I don't see what you're really going to be able to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, you know, that uh, the science fiction staple is that we actually start controlling the weather. Uh, That might be the thing to do.
1: Yeah, um, the
0: rain. So it rains up in the mountains where it turns to snow instead or something.
1: Yes. And well, that's another issue, too, is that because of uh, climate change and warming temperatures, we will be getting a lot of more rain in the wintertime. So it won't be snow. And the nice thing about the snowpack is that you get the snow and it remains snow until the middle of the summer. So you have the the water gradually melting and being released into the uh, the waterways. But uh, with the warmer temperatures, instead of snow, you're getting rain, and so that rain is just going to go straight into the reservoirs. Uh, so you don't have the slow release of water. So um, th- that that's going to be a much bigger challenge then for water distribution in the future.
0: Yeah, and we've certainly seen it in Vegas. I mean, for a couple of weeks before DEFCON and all the time I was there, it seemed like one day out of every three there are flash flood warnings and then big floods. Mm-hmm. So it's always been so it is kind of crazy. You don't get enough rain and then you get too much rain.
1: Yeah, and and was there much emphasis in the hotels about conserving water at Vegas?
0: No, uh, there never is, of course, because you're a guest. But but it did, before we went there, there was big floods that rained down inside the casinos. And yeah. during DEFCON, there was another one that did the same thing, flooded the garages. A guy was riding a raft out of the garage and it was again flooding inside the casinos.
1: Oh, really? You saw this? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, how exciting. Um,
0: Yes, I was on the second floor of the Tuscany where it didn't, but I walked outside and every all the roads were just rivers and there people are posting videos of it raining inside Caesars, down through the lights and everything. Mm. Apparently, they, their roofs can't handle it hmm. and it pours inside the casino. Mm-hmm. So they certainly need to upgrade the casinos, but also, obviously, all that water is being wasted. Roads all turn into rivers um, and I I don't think it goes into a reservoir or anything where they could save it. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Well, uh, I've got uh, the voting machine stuff. So it turns out that not only um, did Trump and his gang uh, and, and the Republican Party um, make these plans to put up fake electors, but a whole bunch of them made plans to conduct unauthorized forensic audits of these voting machines and to download data from them illegally. And now they're going after a bunch of them for that, who formed to secretly gain access to the voting machines and secretly download data from them. There are a few scattered cases of this, but now they're um, they're tracking it down as a big, effectively, conspiracy. And, you know, I'm interested. It has a bit of computer forensic uh, significance and legal significance. And, you know, one way to look at this, I'm often the, uh, the fascist right-winger by San Francisco standards. You know, if you really believed that somebody was messing with the voting machines and hacking them, then you would have to sneak and get a good copy of the data on there to analyze it. And if you really believe that all the election administrators are corrupt and in on it, then you would do it in an unauthorized way. So, you know, from their crazy premise, this is logical activity. And another one, which is also logical activity, is the one that happened during DEFCON. So OAN News sent reporters to DEFCON to go into the hacking voting machine village. And if you think about it from their point of view, DEFCON is where the liberals are practicing hacking the voting machines to steal the election. And they are there undercover to secretly record their nefarious plans like Project Veritas. And so they snuck in without proper press credentials and they tried to film without obeying the rules of DEFCON. And so they kicked them out and banned them, say, you photograph people without consent and you didn't identify yourself properly and you're no good. And I'm sure they're going to see that as this proves they were sneakily hacking the voting machines, and they didn't want us to catch them. And, you know, I, I'm sure that both sides are sure they're right and feel righteous indignation.
1: But I wonder about that. You know, mm-hmm. these uh, OAN types and these uh, election denier types, some of them are just grifters. Some of them really have no uh, conviction other than in trying to make a buck.
0: Well, I imagine you're right, but you never know anybody's heart. But I mean, certainly I think it's true that the uh, Republican voters, something like 80% of them believing that the election was stolen, they're not grifters. They just believe the authority figures they like, like Trump and OAN and Fox, and they believe that there's a vast conspiracy. This is the problem. You know, We've uh, once an idea like this takes hold, it seems like an irretrievable blow to democracy.
1: Yes, well, the, the idea is certainly taken hold now. It is interesting, though, how um, the hackers of DEFCON are being painted as uh, a bunch of liberals. And
0: uh, Well, I uh, think they are, as a matter of fact. Well, they are liberal.
1: They're, I'd say they're different factions, different political factions within the hacker community. There are yeah. definitely some very, very left yeah. uh, people, but there are also some very right people, far-right people. I so, think
0: the left outnumber them by like 10 to 1.
1: Probably, probably. Which is
0: it's true if you keep people, I think most people, that's the problem. I mean, from their point of view, it's not wrong to say, here's the liberals practicing how to hack voting machines. You could say that. That's not a great distortion of the truth.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile the uh, republicans bring in what were they called the cyber ninja the cyber ninja yep. cybersecurity so called right. cybersecurity firm from florida yeah, total incompetence can... didn't know the first thing about what they were doing
0: right <laughs> and so you can see this is like i say most most security professionals are on the left like in general most educated people are on the left because yes. the right is obviously completely insane <laughs> and so when you find the few right wingers you can find you've got lunatics that don't know what they're doing
1: yeah seem to be but but you
0: know i i can see how from their point of view that just proves that it's a bigger conspiracy Mm, yeah yeah so i don't i don't see how this can end
1: (laughs) they'll just need to get better hackers maybe they can recruit some from uh i don't know uh uh russia for example
0: yeah well you know in the in the short run what's happening is they are fouling up the voting machines breaking the chain of custody um, and creating the problem that they're worried about. Now people don't trust the voting machines yeah, because this, weird this right-wing hackers have been sneaking and messing with them.
1: This is true. Yeah, yeah. well, it's just so, like the all the Republican efforts to undermine government and the IRS. is that they, they sabotage uh, the government and the IRS, and uh, so they work less well, uh, which results in less public trust. And so it's just a feedback loop of diminishing public trust, further defunding, further dysfunction
0: it reminds me of a bad divorce when you hate each other and now you start interpreting everything in the most negative way and everything you say just makes it
1: worse yeah well it does seem like uh, some hard right types want to divorce themselves from this country for all their talk yes. of patriotism Like well, take they're a look very at interested the... in upholding the yeah. values and and uh, institutions of this country
0: yeah and this and this fbi search warrant at mar-a-lago just shows the same thing. You could say they went in as politely as they could to recover this stuff, and you could say they terribly abused the rights of Donald Trump. And, you know, depending on, it's just a matter of attitude, how you take the same data and interpret that.
1: Well, it does seem like one set of people is operating on a completely different set of data.
0: Well, it's mostly just an interpretation of the data. I mean, they went in and they took a bunch of stuff. And then they took his passport, apparently by mistake. And so now you can say those rotten bums invaded his privacy. Or you can oh, say did they, they were... take his passport. Yeah, they did take it Two of his, three of his passports.
1: Oh, no. And then they
0: they sort of had to give them back. Oh, we didn't mean to take those. And they say they were taking his passports to trap him in America, those rotten bums. You know, it's it, you know, it just depends on your attitude.
1: Well, as one political commentator put it, and I, I like it. Um, the Trump supporters, the reflexive Trump supporters of America, every time uh, there's some kind of controversy about Trump's actions, what the supporters will say at first is, he didn't do it. Yeah. And then he did do it, but everyone else was doing it before him. Yep, yep. And what then finally, like yeah. he did do it and he's awesome.
0: I know. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's true. It's very much like any other cult the leader can do no wrong,
1: do no wrong at all.
0: And whatever he does is clearly the will of God and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Well, anyway. All right. Let's 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 hear about your forever chemicals. That's the next bit of rain.
1: Yeah. So if you were thinking, well, we're going to get a lot of rain in California. It's going to solve all of our water problems. We can just drink the water that's falling up in California. Not so fast. You may not want to drink the rainwater. In fact, you may not want to drink the rainwater anywhere on Earth because According to a study released by mostly uh, scientists at the University of Stockholm, water everywhere in the world pretty much is contaminated with per and polyfluoral alkyl substances or PFASs. And this is a, a very extensive group of chemicals, um, about 9,000 that are used in mostly industrial applications that are very useful for lubrication uh, and water-resistant and uh, oil-resistant applications. So, uh, products like guard, like uh, fire-retardant foams, like uh, certain lubricants, machine lubricants, uh, also coatings on Teflon pans, Teflon nonstick pans. Well, these are all made with PFASs, these many different thousands of different long chain uh, fluoride and carbon uh, molecules. And the thing about PFAS is is that they're colloquially known as forever chemicals because they just don't break down. They don't break down in the environment. They don't break down inside of bodies uh, because of these very long fluoride chains. And so that means that once a PFAS compound is released into the environment, it doesn't go away. It remains. It stays and it bioaccumulates. So animals will absorb PFAs through eating or swimming or whatever, and then other animals higher up the food chain will then eat those lower animals and then absorb even more. So it just accumulates the higher you go in the food chain. So animals at the top of the food chain, such as humans, well, now we all have Uh, uh, concentrations of PFAS in the body. Um, According to one study, 97% of all Americans have some level of PFAS in their blood. And this is a problem because PFASs are known carcinogens and not just carcinogens, but they can cause other problems like autoimmune conditions uh, and liver problems. So these are bad chemicals. And once they're in your body, they're not going away. They're staying and pretty much everything you eat is also going to have more PFAS in it, and even the water from the rain is going to have the PFAS. Uh, So if you get
0: your water from a well, has that been purified somehow? I mean, that ultimately comes from rain too, right?
1: Ultimately comes from rain. I suppose some underwater aquifers have such ancient water that they have not been contaminated, but it's a good question. I, I wonder if um, PFAS are able to percolate into aquifers in many places. I don't know I if that's have... been studied, actually. I
0: mean, I would assume all the water everywhere has it, so there's nothing you can do, right?
1: Right, there's nothing you can do, except you, it is possible to filter out PFAS.
0: Oh, so if you get like a Brita water filter or something?
1: No, no, not Brita. I think a, a reverse osmosis, if I remember correctly, reverse osmosis works too. You know,
0: you know, my sister lives in a building and they discovered it had lead in the pipes, cool. so she has a filter there on the water and i i think that's what it is it's sort of a big globe on the tap
1: i hope it's a good one because the proper reverse osmosis systems you know they've got like three different canisters and they've got little pumps and valves and there's several hundred dollars a pop and rather complicated um they're they're not just uh, like brita filters
0: no, it's a little bit more than that, but you know, it we're going not have to take it down too much for adults. It's the babies that really have to worry.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Because we're going to die of something else before it gets to
1: us. <laughs> I suppose that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, although lead poisoning is a problem for anyone of any age. It's uh, not
0: much of a problem for adults.
1: Uh, well, uh, I'm going to avoid the lead. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, myself. Thank you. Oh, well, it's just much. it's
0: just as well to avoid it. But the fact is, um, if you're if you're our age. Uh, And the amount of lead you're going to get from that pipe is not going to get you before something
1: else does, you know, Mm I, I like my motor control just the way it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: you know, you got to balance risk. Like, you know, I
1: guess, I guess so. I guess since, so. Since I recently
0: discovered I'm apparently not going to die of cancer, now I have to diet because I'm going to have enough time to die of diabetes and heart disease. You know, you oh. got to balance these things.
1: Yes. Well, you can add PFAS to the, the mix too.
0: Well, that's the question. I mean, I know they lowered the so called safe limit of PFAS by a factor of a million. That's what caused this.
1: Well, right, and so the US is surprisingly enough the world leader in terms of PFAS uh, regulation, or I should say not regulation because it's still being used industrially uh, in the US, but in terms of uh, quantities in drinking water. And so by those American standards and also standards in some European countries such, such as Denmark and Netherlands, there's no rainwater in the world that's safe to drink. And, and, you know
0: from a fundamental from information security risk management point of view this is a useless thing to tell people this is like <laughs> that that dhs threat level that's always orange i mean yeah you have to have levels of risk and you can't tell me that everything is too much risk all the time or it makes me that's useless information you know
1: yeah it's kind of like masking and that COVID, isn't it
0: well if they tell you you have to wear a mask everywhere forever it is unreasonable yes that's why i carried the co2 meter So I could judge the level of risk and decide whether to mask and how much to mask. And that seemed to work.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's true that there's probably only so much we can do. And at 97% of the American population with detectable PFAS and bloodstream, we both of us probably have plenty of PFAS in our bloodstreams. There's no getting away from that.
0: Especially because I had, my parents had Teflon pans when they were new.
1: Ah, the the thing about Teflon pans is that um, actually, the PFAS compounds are driven off in the manufacturing process. Okay. So by the time that the, the Teflon coating is deposited on the pan, um, it's probably not going to leach any PFAs into the food unless you uh, really cook the pan, get it extremely hot, something like, right. like 700 degrees. Well,
0: then, I know then it's, it's a burn brown. It, then, it, then it's gotten... Well, so, so now, now the question is how much is a level that will really hurt you compared to all the other risks you know
1: and that part is not so well understood but it's thought that uh, really there's no safe exposure limit and that's what the authors of this study are arguing is well you
0: could say that about radiation right one one gamma ray might create cancer but in fact there is a level at which it is not noticeable compared to all the other risks
1: true true um And the the problem with studying uh, environmental toxins such as PFAS is is when you are doing a a study, even a very large study, how do you separate out all the potential confounding variables? Right. Um, So, uh, but there have been some animal studies done and uh, there are correlations between people who have higher PFAS levels in their bodies and incidents of other uh, serious health conditions. So, there is clearly some relationship here. And given that PFAS uh, only bioaccumulates, then, you know, if you've got some in your body, you're only going to get more in your body in the future. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter where in the world you are. In the study, they, they had samples. They actually looked at a number of different studies, they, kind of a meta analysis. They, they uh, drew on studies that conducted samples and everything, everywhere from Malta to the Azores to America to Antarctica, to the Tibetan Plateau, and they found the toxic or they found levels, unacceptable levels of PFAS everywhere, including Antarctica and the Tibetan Plateau. So you well, cannot escape it anywhere.
0: Yeah, well, now they've quit using it for most applications in the US, right?
1: Well, for some, like uh, Scotchgard, for example. Uh, the right. EPA got after them about 25 years ago, and so now Scotchgard does not use at uh, least one type of the PFAS. But and Scotchgard is different.
0: anti-fire coatings on fabrics, right?
1: Uh, anti-stain. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. But like the Teflon. Problem, uh, right, right, exactly. But the problem is that there are so many different PFASs out there, and only a few of them have been properly studied. Um, it's possible that some of them are less toxic or non-toxic but they all have this common chemical structure of a long chain of uh, fluoride atoms with some carbon atoms at the end and okay because of that long chain that they do not break down
0: so maybe we should uh, track down a filter that you can put in your house that would cut just stuff down that might be a good good policy
1: Right, it might not be a bad idea because there are a lot of waterways and water sources that are contaminated. I mean, never mind the rainfall. A lot of uh, industrial areas in the country and in the world have really uh, severe pollution. Um, like I understand, there's some um, facilities that manufactured Gore-Tex in New Hampshire that have a lot of PFAS pollution.
0: And I think about seven percent of the houses in America have leaden pipes.
1: Yeah, yeah, whether the pipes themselves or the solder used to join the pipes.
0: Yeah, so so getting a water filter at home might be a good move. Right. All right. And so here I got a funny one. Um in um in what nation did they do this? Um they they hacked into a satellite to play movies. And it did apparently this legally. Somehow they got permission. There was a a geosynchronous satellite was being decommissioned and moved to a higher orbit. And it was spending a month in its original orbit. So in that time, they actually got access to a ground station that could transmit up to it and played like hacker movies and stuff on it for a month. And they streamed the talks at uh, San Diego's hacking conference, Torcon, through this satellite they'd hacked into. And somehow they got permission in some nation to do this. uh, which I'm not able to find in this article, but it's, it's in Vice. Uh, so that's the, It's not that difficult to do, but what's amazing is that they actually got official approval to do this. They're not all having to hide and go to jail. So that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, this article really doesn't uh, provide much information or many details on the, the hack, but it is very impressive. Yeah, I wish they'd been more public about this hack.
0: Like, well, uh, I guess if you were at Turcon, you would have found out. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I see. Also, that you need to have a hack, uh, rather a hack RF SDR, yeah. which is well. That's the a...
0: easy part. But then the main thing is you need like a big antenna
1: and an antenna. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyway, it's pretty cool that you can actually hack into a satellite in the real world and and not go to jail occasionally.
1: Yeah, it sounds like just the thing for Caitlin.
0: That's what I thought. Yes. All right, and so you got the guy that made his own ISP. Now that's the real right to repair.
1: Yeah, you know, there aren't very many heroes on the internet anymore, but there is one man by the name of Jared Mauch who uh, apparently lives um, out in the the countryside a little bit and he wanted to have high-speed internet. And so he asked Comcast how much it would cost him to uh, run uh, fiber out to his home and they quoted him $50,000. $50,000. And so he decided, well, screw that. I'm going to just make my own ISP with fiber. I'm going to do it all by myself. How does he get to the backbone? Well, this article doesn't get into the details, but the man does have some competencies, unlike most of us. He is a network architect and he works for Akamai. So if anyone any layperson is going to have the competency to do this sort of thing, it's Jared Mock, I guess.
0: Well, I like the picture. He looks like he got himself five miles of fiber. I guess he yes. dug his own trench.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is hilarious. Um, he he he's digging his own trenches, he's buying his own equipment, he's pulling the fiber himself. Apparently, he's got since gotten some contractors to do some of the work. How would you get the right of passage
0: through all the land you're going through?
1: Yeah, I wonder about that too. You know, he's done all this legwork. I don't think he has any employees. He's doing it all himself while continuing to work at Akamai, presumably full time. So it's really impressive that not only does he have the competency and the patience to do this work, but to multitask, do all these different things because starting your own ISP, that does not sound like an easy task at all. I would Um, think
0: you would do it with radio. That's how people have done it before. That's much more practical. You put up a dish and broadcast to the backbone from there, digging all these miles of fiber through everybody's land.
1: Yeah, Starlink just came a few years too late, I guess.
0: Yeah, Starlink is the obvious solution.
1: Right, but apparently he did have uh, some kind of um, wireless internet service. He was getting 30 megabits per second on this yeah. wireless service. And it just wasn't good enough for him. Yeah, But um, he decided to go all the way, apparently. And the thing, the interesting thing about uh, this fellow is he does not live far away from civilization. He's not living in a tar paper shack in the mountains. He's not even living out in the sticks, really. He's, he's in a he's in a rural area, but he's not that far away from some decent sized cities in Michigan. So $50,000 certainly seems like an excessive number. Hmm. Um, But the great thing is that not only is he building out the infrastructure himself, but he did a little bit of government hacking, if you will, he managed to get uh, his local county to pitch in two and a half million dollars on this project.
0: Well, what Um, you really need from the county is eminent
1: domain. (laughs) Right. Yeah, which they don't go into. So I'm not sure how he, he even got that. But. You know, he seems to be figuring it out, and he's charging only fifty-five dollars a month for a hundred megabits per second.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing that's to both do up it. and
1: down. Yeah, and then if you want a full gigabit, uh, it's only seventy-nine a month. And then I think there's this an is how the, small, the
0: ISPs get started, like uh, like Sonic.
1: Yeah, but uh, unfortunately, um, there are other big players in the area like Comcast. And uh, even though uh, he got some funding from the the government, so did Comcast for uh, their infrastructure projects. So it sounds like he's going to be serving under a thousand people.
0: Yeah. Well, hooray for small business.
1: Yeah. I mean, props to him.
0: Yeah. And the last one I've got here is one which I was reluctant to put in here because I still don't understand it. But there's a GitHub repository that provides time-lock encryption. Now, I've read articles about time-lock encryption going back at least 10 years, maybe 20. And this is the idea that you encrypt something that can only be decrypted at a specified time in the future. And there are a lot of reasons why you might want to do that, of course. Like, you know, things are sealed for a certain amount of time and all that. But the question is, how on the world would you do that? And the original two ideas I found that I could understand are one where you just give it some incredibly difficult job to do, like cracking a password that will really take that long to do the processing. That would seem to be the most secure way, but insane, of course. And the second one is where you just have basically escrow agencies. You have a bunch of servers that have portions of the key, and they are going to refuse to let you have those portions until the right time and then you're just trusting somebody. That's the general technique. You have a lawyer and they seal something and put it in a safe deposit box and they promise not to open it until this date. So it's not technically impossible. It's just a trusting somebody. And this new one, the newer ones though, I saw one that claims it somehow uses the Bitcoin blockchain. And this one claims it uses um, something that Cloudflare is part of um, that provides randomness on the internet. So it uses something called the League of Entropy Testnet, which is some kind of cloud service to provide truly random numbers. And I don't understand how truly random numbers can somehow be tied to a specific point in time in the future. And they claim they've done that somehow with ZK, SNARKs, and other complex cryptographic entities. They link to four dense mathematical papers and say those are the foundation of this, but none of them gives me any simple explanation of how it is that it ties it to a point in the future, but it works. You can encrypt something and say, don't decrypt until this time. I'm going to try to decrypt it, it won't decrypt until that time, and then it will decrypt. So it is interesting that this uh, sort of crazy idea that's been floating around now has a handy library in Go that will do it efficiently, and uh, I cannot figure out exactly how it works or how secure it is or anything.
1: Have you tested this?
0: No, he has a demo, but you know, what I really like is an explanation in simple terms of how it does the trick about the time. And all I can find is baffling mind-bending complexity on that topic.
1: Yeah, well, I I suppose it would be mind-bendingly complex just by nature, but still, uh, who is the person or people behind this?
0: Uh, This is just one guy um, right now, um, but and I don't even see his name anywhere. Um, oh. but, but I think it's kind of the DRAND project. And DRAND is the distributed randomization project. So that that seems to be pretty well respected. That's a like a lot of big companies like Cloudflare are in on this thing to provide distributed source of random numbers on the internet. Which I think ultimately grew out of the scandal from like 2000. You may, I don't know if you're around for this one. Dan Kaminsky gave a talk about it at DEF CON. Uh, they... they This uh, Canadian researchers downloaded all the public keys for all the SSH certificates on the internet and found that a whole bunch of them, like one in a thousand, were all using the same private keys, which means they're, they're broken. And they wondered what was causing this, and they ultimately determined that it was because the random numbers people use are not random enough. And people were booting up routers and and VPN appliances, and it would take so many milliseconds to boot up and then take the clock and make a random key out of it. And that had a pretty good chance of two of them hitting exactly the same number of clock cycles and the same supposedly random number.
1: That was a few years ago, wasn't it?
0: Oh, yeah, like maybe 10 years ago.
1: Oh, 10 years ago. Okay. But
0: I think this, this caused people to get very upset about the quality of random numbers and start talking about some way to make better random numbers. And they added a hardware random number generator inside the intel processor and they have this cloud solution the source of random numbers in the cloud so um that project which seems pretty respectable has somehow done this which is somehow connected to their cloud random numbers
1: so d is they're they're not charlatans
0: no as far as i can tell d is a serious operation and i think this t lock thing is a serious product I just can't understand how it works because if the numbers are random then how is any particular point in the future the one where it can unlock
1: mm-hmm.
0: um somehow they've made that happen and uh anyway it's just something we should think about and start playing about there are applications for this and uh so it's it's like blockchain it's a crazy little technical stunt that might be useful for certain things
1: oh, this, this is interesting
0: yeah and hope if I do figure it out, I'll mention it on a future podcast and throw it in my cryptography class. I'm I'm hoping somebody will write a description of this in simple terms. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this one. And we'll try again on Friday.